But anyway, the reason that we're doing this today is it's a topic that I think it's important for us to talk about because it's um, widely discussed in theological circles. Uh, I think sometimes there may be an, an overemphasis on the topic, but at the same time, it's something that's in the Word of God and it's important for us to study when we talk about the millennial position. But what has really triggered this is that we are part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And in the EFCA Statement of Faith, um, it was back in 1950, um, it was revised that they put the word premillennial into the Statement of Faith of the Evangelical Free Church. Prior to that, um, even prior to the EFCA, um, there were two statements that were merged into one. Um, prior to 1950, they did not use a word for premillennial. They did not give any spe specificity. They just talked about the return of Christ. 1950, it was at, put into the statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church that we believe in a premillennial return of Christ. And back in 2008, the EFCA statement of faith was redone in a major way. It was a complete re rewriting of the statement of faith. And when that was presented, the original statement that was presented at that time took out the word premillennial. And as the discussions went on, the EFCA leadership said, you know what, it's probably not the right time for us to remove that word from the statement of faith. We will come back and address this at a later time. And in 2017, um, the EFCA made a proposal, and they're a lot like our church. Um, anytime something is voted on, it has to be presented at one annual meeting. And about five, six years ago, they actually went biannual. So it's every two years that they meet. Um, we are a voting member of the Evangelical Free Church. So it's um, voting delegates, mostly pastors, but other people can be delegates for the church. Um, gathered together. This year it was in Chicago, but I was there in 2017 when the proposal was made to replace the word premillennial, and I'll show this to you on a slide, um, with the word glorious return of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain, if you're sitting here thinking, I have no idea what premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, I have no clue. Um, if that's you, that's okay. Um, we'll go through a little bit of a summary on that. We don't have time today to go really deeply, but um, what the Evangelical Free Church did, and maybe it will help if I show you, is they made a proposal. This was working great a moment ago. There we go. And you see what the proposal, I'm going to read this out loud. It says, and this is paragraph 9, article, um, actually it's supposed to be 7. We believe in the personal, bodily, and up until this past June, June of 2019, it had said premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So what we see here is that up until 2000 and up until this past June, again, 2017, the motion was presented to replace the word premillennial with the word glorious. And they had it presented at that, annual, at that conference. And in the following conference, which was June of 2019, 
the Evangelical Free Church voted to approve this proposal, the amendment, and it was just approved on a national level for the Evangelical Free Church this past June of 2019. So it basically now says we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things that we at Riverstone Church, our statement of faith is identical to that of the Evangelical Free Church. So we adopt it in its entirety. So it's in our, our statement of faith is part of our constitution. So we cannot change our statement of faith without a congregational vote. So it's being the elders of our church are putting forward the motion to amend our constitution to mirror that of the evangelical free church, which would remove the word premillennial and replace it with the word glorious. We happen to have three handouts today, and they're, they're over here on the table. If you wanted to get up and grab them, that's fine if you didn't get them yet. Uh, one of them is something that's being distributed to the church family coming up that has in it um, two revisions to our Constitution. Um, one of them, and actually this, this only shows, actually this shows both, so I better explain it. Um, one is, what I just showed there, is to replace word premillennial with glorious when it comes to Christ's return. The other is, and we're not going to get into this today, but since you have it, the cat's out of the bag. Um, since we hired Jeff Eubank and Tom McFarlane retired, um, what we at Riverstone Church, the role of treasurer has grown way beyond the role that a volunteer can accommodate. Tom McFarlane, who is probably like equivalent to three really high-end CPAs, was working about 17 hours a week as a volunteer doing our church finances. Um, back in January, we hired Jeff Eubank as our director of operations, who now is filling the role that Tom McFarlane had filled in our financial arena. So Tom McFarlane is the one who said, when we were going through this, he said, guys, if you hire a director of operations, it's silly to continue with the church treasurer. What are they going to do? And we looked at it as elders and as the finance team, and we decided that's really accurate. Um, so what we're doing is removing the position of church treasurer from the Constitution. So this one whole section would be done away with that you see here on the statement on these revisions to the Constitution. And the word church treasurer in this one, section four under financial secretary, would re be replaced with the word director of operations. So that's totally irrelevant to today's topic, but since we're presenting that to you, um, that's what's coming up. Let me give you guys a little, oh, by the way, the other two handouts we have, um, this one here, uh, resources regarding the proposed amendment to the statement of faith. This was put together by the Evangelical Free Church that was on their website. It lists on there some resources that you can go to if you want to do some further homework and just get a better understanding. What is this about uh, the whole millennial issue? Um, what is it that they're proposing? There's a Q&A that's on the website that from the questions that they've developed. In those two years, between 2017 and this past June, they held, I think, 19 sessions around the country for people to go to to ask their questions, and they held a big one at the annual conference in Chicago prior to the vote 
So some of the questions from that are on there. Um, and then really what this drives is, if you look under here, it says essentials and non-essentials in the statement of faith. And as they're making this, it is not a movement away from a premillennial position by the evangelical free church. Should Riverstone Church make this change? It is not a movement away from the premillennial position. What it is, it's broadening it so that if somebody is an evangelical Christian, that basically our statement of faith is pretty explicit. If you look in there under, under who, the work of Jesus Christ, who we, what we believe about the Word of God, what we believe about the Bible, it is very solid, evangelical, conservative theology. What really is being said is the return of Christ, as far as the millennial view goes, is not an essential doctrine. And if something is in your statement of faith, you're raising that issue to the level of an essential doctrine. And if it's in the statement of faith, really what you're saying is, this is an area of unity that we could not align ourselves with those who would believe other than we do in our statement of faith. Doesn't mean we can't have lunch with them, but it means we're not going to align with them for certain things. And what the EFCA is saying is, the timing of Christ's return does not rise to the level of an essential doctrine. And right now, because with the word premillennial in this statement of faith, um, they call it credentialing. If somebody wants to be licensed, if somebody wants to be ordained, um, you are required to adhere 100% to the statement of faith. So if somebody held an amillennial position, a postmillennial position, or maybe they just haven't nailed down where they stand, they could not be licensed or ordained in the evangelical free church. And um, so what this is saying is, wait a minute, and I'll show you some of the names of some really solid evangelicals that hold to other positions than premillennial, we would be saying they cannot be part of the evangelical free church of America because they're not premillennial. So on our church staff even, when it comes to the tribulation, when it comes to different perspectives, and I'll show you what they are, we do have some various opinions um, within our, on our own church staff. Not so much on the millennial position. Um, I'm solidly premillennial. I was 100% in favor of the EFCA making this change because of who it would exclude from the denomination, not because I believe we should change our position. So I hope that makes sense. So this is not a moving away from the premillennial position. It's opening up to other positions when it comes to your view on the millennium. So I hope that helps. Um, and then interestingly, the third, the third handout I have here says, is your confession of faith too narrow? Three questions. Now, this is, are you guys familiar with the Gospel Coalition? wonderful resource, one of the most solidly evangelical resources out there. Um, they've got a great website. Uh, I was on vacation from August 10th to 17th. If you look at the date of this, August 14th, this just came out from the Gospel Coalition. So I was on the beach and I got this text from John Beagle saying, did you see the front page of the, of the Gospel Coalition website? I said, no, I'm on vacation. And um, so I did read it. And we printed this out because 
it talks about, and this was written by the Southern Baptists, and they are bringing the point that when it comes to our essentials, we shouldn't be drawing such strict lines and that the millennial position should not rate as an essential doctrine of the church. And about a third of the article covers the Evangelical Free Church's recent vote. And in this, they're really commending the EFCA for, for making the move that they made. So that's out there for you guys to read. Um, I want to give you, like I told you, I don't want to assume that everybody here understands the different positions. So let me give you a little bit of a, um, and I'll get where I can use the pointer. This shows you a summary view of the three primary millennial positions. One is amillennialism. Um, the letter A in front of millennial is basically means no or not, non. It, it basically says there is they don't believe in a literal thousand-year millennium, which is a reign of Christ upon the earth for a thousand years. Um, I'll explain to you. I have another slide that gives a little more detail, but I wanted to put all three of them just on the basics. And if you'll notice, here's the cross. This is the, obviously the resurrection of Jesus. Here's kind of like a historic timeline. Christ's second coming takes place here. I'll give, I'll give you a little bit of a, a detailed slide later, but in the amillennial position, they don't believe of a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and we move, when Christ comes back, we move right into the new heavens and the new earth. A post-millennial position, here you have the cross of Jesus Christ, and basically what the post-millennialists believe is that we're technically in the millennial period, they don't necessarily, some do, most don't consider it a thousand literal years, but they believe that the earth is progressively going to get better. The gospel is going to spread, the world is going to be evangelized to the point where it's going to get to the point where it's so evangelized that Christ returns. So if you'll notice, one of the key differences they don't really hold to a tribulation period at the end because they believe that things for the church are progressively going to get better and usher in the return of Jesus. The premillennial position is the one here on the bottom. And what you'll see is that this is really right now the age that we're in. Here's the, return, here's the resurrection. We have a period here that's called the tribulation which most premillennialists would view it as a seven-year period of time that happens right before the rapture. This line here represents the rapture. I'm sorry, the rapture would be right here in most views of a premillennial position. Let me clarify. Premillennialism has two main views. There's a dispensational premillennialism and there's a historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism goes way back to about the first three centuries after, after the resurrection. The church was primarily premillennial. Historic premillennialism was the view of the day. And it wasn't until about eight, the mid-1800s that dispensational premillennialism came into focus. And in dispensational premillennialism, primarily you'll find what's called a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, that the church 
Jesus Christ is going to come back. He won't be seen by the world, but he'll come back and believers in Jesus will rise up. Those who are alive will rise with him in the clouds. Those who have already, are already dead will be resurrected and will rise to meet Jesus in the air. So basically the church is taken away right about here. Seven years go forward, which is the tribulation period. And then you have the second coming takes place where Jesus comes back in all of his glory. This, the church, the saints come back with him and enter into a thousand-year millennial reign, Jesus leading and reigning on the earth for a thousand years. And um, now the difference being, and I'll show you these on a more detailed slide, historic premillennialism, not 100%, but primarily is what is called post-tribulational in their view. What they believe is that the rapture, is, which right here, here was the rapture in a pre-trib view, they believe that Jesus will come back and they're post-tribulational. So what they would say is that this second coming right here of Jesus, that's when Jesus comes back, the church will rise to meet him in the air. They do not, the, in, the, in the dispensational view, the church does not go through the tribulation, which would be awfully nice if that's true. Um, in a historic pre-mill, as a historic premillennial view, if you're post-tribulational, the church goes through the tribulation period, rises to meet Jesus in the air, and then the 1,000-year millennium takes place here on the earth. So basically what we're looking at is the millennial position has to do with do we believe that there will be a 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth? The tribulational view, which is not being talked about by our constitutional change. That the EFCA statement of faith has never said anything about a tribulational view, whether it's pre-trib, post-trib, or sometimes there's what's called a mid-trib view, where if here's the rapture, here's the tribulation period, that Christ comes back in the middle of the tribulation period. That would be a mid-tribulational view. So the tribulational view has to do with when does Jesus come back and take the saints from the earth up. Does that make sense? Do you guys have any questions about that so far this, this summary? Because I do have a more detailed slide, but any questions? Yeah, Rose. Historical, when I were talking about, so you're talking about that they believe that um, after the tribulation, um, they get raptured up. Yes. Do they believe that he's the second coming? Is that after the No, it's right here. It's one event to them. The rapture and the second coming are one event and the church rises in the air and Jesus remains on the, you know, there is a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. The amillennial view similarly will say that the second coming, here's amillennialism here, and like the rapture of the church takes place right here, but they don't hold to a thousand year millennial period. What they believe is that we go right into the new heavens and the new earth where under, I'll tell you what, let me show you a little bit more. Oh, no. No, the problem is a lot of my notes are hidden on the top of the screen. No, it's, it's really not much at all. Um, this is, remember I said dispensational premillennialism. Here's the birth of Jesus. Let's just say even the cross at the same time, the resurrection. Here's showing a pre-tribulational rapture. This is when Jesus comes back, takes the church up into the air, 
we go into a seven-year tribulation period right here. Christ's second coming takes place here. He brings the church and all the saints back with him and moves right into a millennial kingdom with Jesus reigning on the earth. Satan is bound. I'll show you. We talked about notes. That's the dispensational view in more detail. But what you'll see here is that during this period of time, Satan is bound right here so that he's no longer like fighting against the saints. Um, he's having his heyday right during this tribulation, but he's bound right here. We go through the millennium, and at the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed right here. He leads people in revolt against Jesus, and then you have the final judgment where basically it says with a word, Jesus defeats Satan, he's thrown into the lake of fire, and at this point in time here, the unrighteous, those who never follow Jesus, are raised again, they're resurrected, they're judged, and as those followers of Jesus go into the new heavens and the new earth, and this is Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, okay? They move into the new heavens and the new earth, but here, as Satan is judged, he'll be the first that's thrown into what's called the lake of fire, and then all of those who never put their faith in Jesus will go into a Christless eternity following Satan as they are judged at this point in time. So, Okay. Yeah, that's one of the things, and this is one of the things that also kind of causes some division, like, not division, but like, but the difference between the historic pre-mill and the dispensational view is if you're holding to a dispensational view and you put the rapture here and the church is taken out, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ during this period of time. They remain on the earth through the tribulation. So when the church comes back, they, along with those who were raptured, enter into the millennial period following Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, so they're on the earth along with, so one of the confusing parts of this, and this is why you get a lot of people, well, what, what, what am I? you end up having people coming in here who are not glorified. See, the, if you're raptured, you're given a glorified body, and you're coming back with Jesus now, so you will have glorified and non-glorified saints going into the millennium if you hold to this, the, you know, the dispensational view. In the historic premillennial view, the rapture does not happen in a pre-trib position. It happens in a post-trib. And by the way, there are dispensational premillennialists who hold to a post-tribulational rapture. It's not 100%. But if you held to a post-tribulational rapture, you're not going to have people coming to faith in Jesus here. Everybody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ will be glorified at Christ's second coming and enter into the millennial kingdom in their glorified state. Make sense? Walt. Yes. 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 
because that'll be the same as anyone who died in here as a follower of Jesus. Um, if you have a loved one who's already gone to heaven, gone on before you, they're in the presence of Jesus and they no longer have their earthly body. Their, their sin is done away with and they are now in a glorified state, just like Jesus was when he was resurrected and walked on the earth. So anyone who dies prior to the second coming of Jesus will be glorified. Um, yeah, I can make sure. I can, we can make copies available. Um, so anyway, so this is the dispensational premillennial view. Um, here's, some, here's some distinctions on dispensational premillennialism. Now, we talked about the timing of the rapture and the tribulation. The view of Israel and the church is another major distinction between the different views. Dispensational premillennialism views that Israel and the church are two distinct identities with individual redemptive plans. So what they're saying is that when God gave his promises to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, that those promises are still going to be completely fulfilled in the, with the nation of Israel. An amillennial position would say, especially, and also some of the historic premillennialist views, would say that no, um, some of those, and I have to be fair and say that what most of them would say, some of those will be filled through the nation of Israel, but primarily those promises are going to be fulfilled within the church. And so that the promises kind of have been handed over rather than the nation of Israel, but to the church. And so a dispensational view would say, no, there's two distinct plans. There's the church, national Israel, and then there's, I mean, not the church, there's national Israel and there's the church. Two distinct and separate plans. Um, most dispensationals would say that they are pre-tribulational, so that they're the rapture before the seven-year tribulation. Christ returns at the second coming happens at the end of that seven-year tribulation. Christ will reign for a thousand years from the new Jerusalem. And that those who believe during the tribulation, which is what we just talked about, will populate the earth during the millennium along with those raptured or raised prior to the tribulation glorified. Jeff. <laughs> no. Um, and we're going to move into that because most of what we're covering in the last half of today has to do with how does this matter to us? Why should we be in favor of the change that the Evangelical Free Church just made? But what I didn't want to do was come in here assuming that everybody knows what the three different positions represent. So as we move on, historic pre-mill, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, I'm going to play a 13-minute video that is really well done that was presented at the EFCA Theology Conference explaining why our denomination is doing this. And Bill Kynes, who's a pastor down in Virginia, was one of the authors of our Statement of Faith in 2008. He happens to be on the board of directors of the Gospel Coalition. He does a much better job than I would do. So we're going to listen to Bill explain it. But um, what I'll show you here, this is the historic pre-mill in a much more detailed view. Again, the biggest difference is it doesn't show the rapture happening right here. It's basically combined right here. We move into the millennium 
and then we have the new heavens and the new earth. Historic pre-mill, for the most part, would say the church is the fulfillment of Israel. I want to, um, I, I, I really want to make sure we're fair to the different views. A lot of times you'll hear the word replacement theology and that the church has replaced Israel. I think a fairer term to them would say is that no, it's a fulfillment. Let's not separate the two. The church is fulfilling many of the promises made to Israel. Um, living and dead saints will meet the Lord in the air immediately preceding the millennial reign. Christ will reign for a thousand years on the earth, and then only glorified saints will populate the earth during the millennium, as far as believers go, okay? Because there are going to be people that have never accepted Jesus Christ, a lot of them, because if you go through that tribulation and you see what takes place at the end, it gets pretty ugly, a lot of the population is killed. Um, but you will have people who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. They're just not going to bow their knee to Jesus. Um, that there will be non-believers at the end when Jesus comes back who go into the millennium that never bow to Jesus. Um, but meant probably the, more, the majority of the population is probably dead from what takes place under the wrath of God. But there are going to be people that go in that that survive the tribulation. Here you have the amillennial view. Again, here is where you have the birth of Jesus Christ. They would, I guess, the word you could just say. And I want to be really careful because we can get. It's called hermeneutics, okay? Which means how do we how do we study the Bible? You have to have a hermeneutic, which is your approach to biblical interpretation. And dispensationalism tends to have, and a lot of times they'll throw around the word literal, but that can be deceptive. Um, I went, Dallas Seminary tended to be strongly dispensational. That's where I went to school. You'll hear the words much more of a historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. Because, for example, um, nobody has a complete literal interpretation of Scripture. Um, Bible says, Jesus, what did Jesus say? I am the door. You know, you know, who is Jesus? He's the Lamb of God. Well, do we believe that Jesus is a, a wooden door? Does anyone? No. So the, everybody in their hermeneutic and in their interpretation of Scripture has to apply interpretive principles to the Bible. So they'll say, no, that genre, you know, that's, that's a metaphor, okay? So everybody has to apply some biblical interpretation to the Word of God. And the question comes up, how much do you attribute to, say, making it a metaphor? So what you'll find is that an amillennial view will spiritualize more of the Bible than probably a dispensational view, but everybody is spiritualizing and, you know, reading some of it as a metaphor. But what they'll say is that it's not a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. We are in the church age, the present age, and this is the millennial period. And um, then you come down here, it says, you know, promises made to Abraham, Israel, and David are fulfilled by Christ or his church. And um, I want to just share, I, I really appreciated this, because I tell you, I went to Dallas. I was there back when probably dispensationalism was even more in, in its heyday at the school. And one of my professors was a strong, it's called classic dispensationalism, because even when I was at Dallas, um, Daryl Bach preached here about five years ago. 
if anyone was here. Um, wonderful theologian. Um, he was one of the authors of the book Progressive Dispensationalism, which made some distinctions, especially about the promises to the church, I mean, to, to the, uh, the nation of Israel, that he kind of moved away from classic dispensationalism, where he said there's two very distinct plans of God, one for the church, one for the nation of Israel. Progressive dispensationalism came in in the 90s and basically said, well, it's not so distinct. There could be some blurring here. And Daryl Bach was one of the primary authors of that. But when I was in school, um, Dr. Leitner um, was one of my professors who was a classic dispensationalist, very strong on it, wrote a lot of books on it. And at the same time, there was a, um, a Westminster Seminary professor who was writing books from an all-millennial perspective. And whenever one of them wrote a book, the other one would write a book against the book that just came out, and it got heated. I mean, you could tell. I mean, it was like flying some of that back and forth, and you would think that they really didn't like each other. And I really appreciated one day in class when Dr. Leitner said, you know, he said, you guys, you, you read, because we had to read all the different views. He would say, you know, you're reading all of this. He said, but one thing, just remember. He said, one day, he said, we're going to be going up to heaven. And he said, I'm going to look over next to me, and I'm going to see him going up next to me. Then he said, then I'll be able to smile and say, see, I told you I was right. But he said, let's not forget that we're both going to be going up. And so I think that's a really, I'm, I was glad he said that because no matter how strong you are on one position or the other, and this is what the EFCA felt, that by us putting in the statement of faith the word premillennial, we were excluding other evangelical Christians. So it's basically saying, and you know, if, if from here, you're going to hear primarily as we go through the scriptures, you're probably going to hear a premillennial teaching coming out of Riverstone Church because it's what our pastors tend to be. But at the same time, we are all in favor of this change because we don't want to exclude those evangelicals who hold to something different. Um, the amillennial church is the eschatological fulfillment of Israel. Um, living in dead saints meet the Lord in the clouds and immediately proceed to their eternal state. And the millennium inaugurated with Christ's resurrection is in an already not yet sense. That's a key phrase, already and not yet. Each of the views hold a position that says, well, it's kind of already and not yet. But that means is that for the an amillennialist will say, no, yeah, we are right now in the church age and a lot of the promises are being fulfilled. They're taking place right now but ultimately will not be completely fulfilled to the new heavens and the new earth. Dispensational premillennialists and then historic premillennialists will also have an already not yet in place. I mean, even in dispensational theology, what they'll say is even in the millennial age, there'll be a fulfillment of a lot of the promises, but that at the same time, um, it won't even until the new heavens and the new earth be completely fulfilled because at the end of that millennium, there's going to be a rebellion against God. And when you get into the new heavens and the new earth, all rebellion is over. And we go into eternity worshiping Jesus. Yeah. Okay, she said in the amillennial view, when a person dies, where does their soul go? The same as what we would say for a premillennialist. If they die, they're in the presence of the Lord. And, um, but
But what they look at is there's not a separate rapture. It's when Jesus comes back at that second coming, the new heavens and the new earth are established. So whether you were alive at that time or you're already dead at that time, you'll move together into the new heavens and the new earth. Um, Postmillennialism, I'm going to just touch on this briefly, um, believes that in this period right in here, um, they'll say the millennium, some will say it's literal, some will say it's not. That's what we're in today. Here's the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, they'll say that things, tremendous expansion of Christianity, large number of ethnic Jews will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Things are just getting better. And boom, here comes Jesus comes back and we move right into the new heavens and the new earth. In fairness to these views, I want to just help us to remember that probably in about the first three centuries after Jesus, historic premillennialism was the dominant view. So if you go back to some of the early church fathers in the years like 100, 200 AD, um, historic premillennialism was pretty much the dominant view. Then when Con around the time of Emperor Constantine in Rome and all of a sudden the church came in and it was made the religion of the, of the day, Christianity, that's when amillennialism um, started to take over. Augustine and some others were the ones who probably brought a lot of the perspective of amillennialism in. And all the way through the period of really the reformers of, um, you know, Calvin and Luther, amillennialism all through that period was the dominant view of the church. And then it was probably right after you had, after the reformers, um, we had a period of time where post-millennialism was probably within the dominant view of the church. Um, the era of Jonathan Edwards um, and getting into that period of like the 1700s into the early 1800s. And then around 1850s, um, John Nelson Darby is the one who came out and advocated for the um, dispensational premillennial view. And probably from about the 1850s up until around the present time, um, it went back to premillennialism, became the dominant view of the church again. And I'd say right around 2000, early, you know, well, maybe about 20, 30, 40 years ago, amillennialism has having a significant influence as well. So there's, there's a real mix between premillennial, which is probably still the dominant view of the church, but the amillennial perspective has grown. Um, and you'll see that amillennialism in Presbyterian churches and especially um, you'll find amillennialism to be the view. Um, most Baptist churches would probably be more on the pre-mill side, but there's, um, there's different, just, that's not 100% accurate either. I want to um, get to the, I, I kind of covered all of this. I want to hit this here. I want you to listen. This is um, Bill Kynes. Again, Bill Kynes is a pastor of um, Annandale Evangelical Free Church in Annandale, Virginia. Just a wonderful theologian. Um, and matter of fact, he was here at our church, met with our elders last year. Um, just a really, really godly man. Um, Greg Strand is, um, by the way, this is Bill Kine right here. Um, this is Greg Strand. Um, Greg is, um, John, what's Greg's title? So he's our theology guru of the Evangelical Free Church, who's out in um, Minneapolis. So you'll hear both Greg's voice and Bill's voice on what I'm going to put on here. I'm going to play, it goes, this is long, I'm only going to play the first 13 minutes of it.
In February 2019, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, for the annual theology conference. As part of this conference, there was a Statement of Faith Q&A on the motion to amend Article 9 of our EFCA Statement of Faith, which consists of removing the term premillennial and replacing it with glorious. On this episode, Bill Kynes and Greg Strand, members of the Spiritual Heritage Committee, gave an introduction to the session by responding to a few of the commonly asked questions. Bill serves as senior pastor at Cornerstone Church and EFC Church in Annandale, Virginia. Greg serves as executive director of theology and credentialing in the EFCA. This morning, uh, Bill Kynes will come and give a brief uh, introduction to the motion to amend that's before us, uh, and then I will respond to some of the questions. Well, good morning. Uh, It's my task here this morning to introduce uh, what I trust will be a very healthy discussion. Uh, We look forward to interacting with your uh, questions and comments uh, as we consider this topic. Let me be very clear at the outset that this proposal to amend our statement of faith is really a continuation of what we in the EFCA discussed over a decade ago. Let me ask you, who was not here 2007, 2008, during those times of discussion. Okay, there are a few of you, but uh, I think most of you will recall uh, back in 2007, the Board of Directors circulated several drafts of a new statement of faith that did not include premillennialism as the one required eschatological position in the free church. And in discussions across the country in those days, we found wide support from that change, uh, though also some were opposed. And rather than risk losing all the other very helpful changes that were being proposed, the board decided to reinsert premillennialism into the final version of the Statement of Faith that was presented at the 2008 conference for a vote and which was approved by an 86% uh, approval. Uh, I went along with that decision at the time, and I was called upon by the board to defend it before the conference. But it was evident that this issue was not resolved and that it would be picked up again. So over a decade later we come to this point. Well, as we open this discussion this morning, I want to present the central reason why this amendment is being proposed, and that is this. The insistence in the EFCA that, we, that you must be premillennial is in conflict with our strong value of unity in the gospel in which we major on the majors. And what is central to the gospel, and what ought to be central in our statement of faith, is that the coming of Christ will be glorious. Now let me repeat that. The insistence in the EFCA that you must be premillennial is in conflict with our strong value of unity in the gospel in which we major on the majors. And what is central to the gospel, and what ought to be central in our statement of faith, is that the coming of Christ will be glorious. Now let me unpack that just a bit. One of the great strengths of the EFCA and one of the things that attracted many of us to it in the first place is our emphasis on the centrality of the gospel, the gospel as it's revealed in the inerrant scriptures. We major on the majors. We come uh, come together around the central doctrines of the faith, the central doctrines that have been held by born-again, Bible-believing followers of Christ through the ages. And we agree that issues of secondary importance will not divide us. I think of Arnold T. Olson's book, The Significance of Silence. In that book, Dr. Olson notes that what is unique about the free church statement of faith are the omissions, 
when compared to other creeds. Dr. Olson writes, once the early free church leaders began to put into writing what was commonly believed among them, they were silent on those doctrines which through the centuries had divided Christians of equal dedication, biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love for Christ. He recognizes that some will not be comfortable with the silence of the EFCA statement on some matters. But he asks, why should believers separate themselves from each other over differences which had existed unresolved for centuries? And so our statement of faith reflects this desire for unity in the fundamental tenets of the gospel. We are silent on those doctrines which through the centuries have divided Christians of equal dedication, biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love for Christ. We are silent except in this one place where we come down on one particular view and we require that only those who are premillennialists can be full members of our association and in many cases of our churches. Many see a significant conflict here. You can be covenantal or dispensational. You can be Calvinist or Arminian. You can be Baptistic or Paedobaptist. You can be secessionist or charismatic. But you must be premillennial. A number of free church pastors have expressed the tension they feel, which I feel myself every time a new member's class is taught, which I've done probably close to 100 times. Uh, We speak about our statement of faith, affirming the core doctrines of our faith as it relates to the gospel, those tenets held by Orthodox Christians through the centuries. The nature of God is Trinity, the supreme authority of the Bible, the dignity and depravity of humanity, the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Christ, his atoning work, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the nature of the church and the Christian life, the, the coming of Christ, and the eternal destiny in heaven and hell. All these are central to the gospel until you get to that one word, premillennial, which is on a different level theologically, and for many it seems out of place. It's clear that the nature of the millennium is one of those doctrines over which theologians equally knowledgeable, equally committed to the Bible, equally evangelical, have disagreed through the history of the church. And for many, this is a tension that ought to be addressed. We must either quit saying that we major on the majors, or we must quit requiring premillennialism as the one eschatological position that is allowed among us. And this amendment is designed to resolve that conflict. But let me turn to the other side of this amendment. We believe that the central way, the fundamental way, that the coming of Christ is described in the New Testament is not premillennial. No, it is glorious. We find this description four times in Matthew alone, not to mention the synoptic parallels. Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will sit also on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 24, 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And Mark adds this one, 
Mark 8.38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And we see this emphasis also in the Apostle Paul. Uh, Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul refers to the day Christ comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And in Titus 2.13, Paul writes, We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Peter, three times he refers to the glory of Christ that is to be revealed. 1 Peter 1.7, Peter refers to the, the praise, glory, and honor that results when Jesus Christ is revealed. 1 Peter 4.13, he says, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And in 1 Peter 5.1, Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. This theme of suffering and glory, it's fundamental to the gospel. The whole shape of the gospel, it it comes together in these themes. Yes, our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the oft-repeated and clear teaching of the scripture. This is fundamental to the gospel. This is what has been central in the teaching of the church and in the church's historic confessions of faith. And this, I would say, is central to what we preach. Well, this is where our hope lies, in the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there were and there are some who have theological objections to broadening our eschatology. They're concerned that abandoning premillennialism as a required position would mean abandoning the inerrancy of the Bible. Or it would uh, radically alter the interpretive framework, the hermeneutics through which we understand the Bible. Uh, Many of you uh, can recall that uh, each of these objections was addressed directly in two theological conferences. In 2006, uh, church historian John Woodbridge, New Testament scholar Grant Osborne, affirmed strongly that there is no necessary link between one's millennial position and a commitment to biblical inerrancy. In fact, some of the strongest proponents of inerrancy in Christian history and today have not been premillennialists. Augustine, Calvin, Wesley, Warfield, Packer, and Sproul, to mention a few. The doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture is not necessarily tied to premillennialism. And regarding the issue of hermeneutics... In 2007, we had uh, respected evangelical scholars representing four different eschatological views discuss their interpretive principles. And it was clear that the amillennialists and at least one of the premillennialists were nearly identical in the methods they used in interpreting the Bible. And this is the case simply because within premillennialism, there is a great variety in which the Old Testament promises to Israel are understood to be fulfilled, whether in Christ, in the church, in the millennium, in the new heavens, and the new earth. This objection, that if we eliminate premillennialism, uh, we would dramatically change our hermeneutic, might be stronger if we were all traditional dispensationalists in our theology. But that's no longer the case. It may have been in the past, but it's no longer the case. Broadening our views 
on the millennium would not change the hermeneutical frameworks that are already widely accepted in the EFCA. This amendment is based on the principle that one's position on the millennium should not be a boundary that excludes other Bible-believing evangelical brothers and sisters from full fellowship in our churches. And we believe that just as the change in 1977 from an exclusively pre-tribulational view to one that includes mid- and post-tribulationalists has been a healthy and positive change enriching our movement, so we believe a move to allow godly, evangelical, non-premillennialists to join us, to partner with us in our churches and our efforts to reach the world for Christ would also enrich our movement. If we really do major in the majors as we say we do, we think that our statement of the central matters of the gospel should not be limited to one position on the millennial issue, but instead should focus on what the scripture focuses on, the coming of Christ in glory. So that's the basic rationale for this proposal. Uh, We look forward to further discussion. Let me turn it over to Greg. Okay, didn't he say that really well? Um, And so that really is a summary of why this is happening, is the fact that um, if the evangelical free church says is that we are going to major on the majors or we're going to put our focus on the essentials of the doctrines of of the Bible in the church and we hold to one particular millennial view, there's an inconsistency there. Um, he did say one thing that was interesting. He said, you know, if everyone were, dis- especially classical dispensationalists, um, we wouldn't need to be making this change. But the reality is that not everyone are, is classical dispensationalists, and we have a variety not only within our denomination but within our own church here at Riverstone. The um, statement of faith that we use today that's in our Constitution was adopted in 2008 by the EFCA, Uh, We adopted it as as well as our own, but when people join Riverstone Church and you go through the membership class, you need to fill out an application, and on that application it says, I read the statement of faith and I agree to it in its entirety, and you have to sign that. Um, Basically, premillennial has been in our statement of faith, and it still is until we vote in September at the annual meeting when we would adopt a change to go to glorious The elders made a vote back probably 2009, 2010, that we said at that time, if anybody comes into membership and the only place that they disagree on happens to be the millennial position, we would allow them into membership of the church. So we as a local church already made that decision probably about nine or ten years ago, and we've been holding to that as a church. So at the same time, with pretty much, I mean, I don't know of any of our elders that have come through that are not pre-millennial, but um, we just made that because, and if you look at this, um, early church fathers and their millennial position, um, and I, I put, I added that little caution, the lines can be very blurred. It's not as black and white as sometimes we would like it to be if we go back and read what their positions were. But you can see here that, remember I mentioned that the first like 300 years of the church was primarily premillennial, um, a historic premillennial. And you can see Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, not John Beagle, but John in the Bible. Um, 
you know, he came, look at, he was born in 70 A.D. Um, he was probably in his 20s when John died on Patmos, and here he's a historic premillennialist um, coming in, you know, you know, we have all the way down through, and you see that we don't, oh, Clement snuck in there as an amillennialist um, in the late 150s, early 200s, but then when you get into the, pretty much it's not until really the fourth century that amillennialism comes into its um, primary position. But now as we move on, you'll see that Martin Luther, um, if you know the reformers, Philip Melanchthon and John Calvin, um, all amillennial. Um, then you have a famous theologian, Jonathan Edwards, um, was a post-millennialist. Um, that was during the period of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment that really post-millennialism came into vogue. Um, then you get into people like B.B. Warfield, J.I. Packer, um, amillennialist. Um, you know, then you have a historic pre-mill position held by like John Piper. Tim Keller is an amillennialist. Um, Wayne Grudem, D.A. Carson, um, theologians today who are historic premillennialists. Um, some of the people I went to school under um, were, if you go back to Dallas Theological Seminary, John Walvoord and Dwight Pentecost would have been more classical dispensationalists. Um, and then you had, even within Dallas, when you had progressive dispensationalism moved in. So I don't, what I don't want you to do is to say, man, I really, I love John Calvin. I'm going to be an amillennialist. Um, my take is study it yourself. I was hesitant to put this up on the screen. I think even today, I'm thinking, oh, I love John Piper, so therefore I'm a, I'm a historic premillennialist. Um, I think you need to study it yourself. And the bottom line is, is this a doctrinal position, you know, really the, the millennial position, something that should divide Christians. Um, he, when we listen to Bill Kynes made a statement, the evangelical free church has made a decision to say, we are going to major on the majors. And in doing so, they had, we had to denominationally define what are the majors. Well, if you want to know what they are, Read the statement of faith, the, the handout that we have over there, because you will see that the EFCA is very strong on who is God, what we believe about the scriptures, the work of Jesus Christ all the way through, um, very strong. But what we're saying as denomination is there's going to be some things that other denominations will put in their statement of faith that we're going to choose not to. And then what they're in essence saying is each individual church within the denomination is going to have to determine their position. And the reason you have to, when we preach at Riverstone, if you notice, we'll preach a book of the Bible. We don't skip chapters because there's something in there that we don't want to take a position on. We'll preach right through. So you're going to hear our positions coming out. And we don't really advertise when we have differences um, within the positions that we hold. And... Um, but there are times where with on our staff, we're going to have differences of some of the views. Um, if you'll notice in our statement of faith, we don't have anything in there about, they call the words cessationists. Um, the, the gifts of the spirit, like speaking in tongues or the gift of healing or something like that. Um, a cessationist will say, no, they, they ceased at the first century when the death of the apostles. And a continuationist will say, mm, no, they're still in effect today. And 
the EFCA chooses not to put that in their statement of faith. Um, the issue of Arminianism, Arminianism and Calvinism. If you'll notice, it is not in our statement of faith. So there are some churches that are Arminian, which, and there are some churches that are Calvinistic, if you know what these terms are. Um, we happen to lean on the Calvinism side here at Riverstone Church. But the EFCA has chosen to not make those distinctions. And some people don't like that. Some people want those things spelled out in their, in their statement of faith. If you'll notice, on creation, we don't say, the EFCA does not say anything about the age of the earth. Is it an old earth or is it a young earth? Um, that's not in there. Um, it's not saying it's not important. What the EFCA is saying, no, we allow some variation, and that's up to the individual churches on what they believe. So to help with that, um, well, you know what? I better cover this before we wrap up, too. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? He, John MacArthur went to Dallas Seminary. And um, John MacArthur probably... It's, John, if you even would nail down MacArthur, he... So I didn't want to put a leaky on the board. So, um, yeah. What it means is for him... John MacArthur, if you talked to him 25 years ago, he would have said he was a classic, a dispensational premillennial. Um, he has shifted in that regard, moving more towards a historic premillennial position. I don't think he would call himself a historic premillennialist 100%. So in something I was reading by him, he used the term futuristic premillennial. So we put it up there. And... Um, you know, and, and if you want to let the cat out of the bag, I probably would say I'm in a similar place. If you talked to me 25 years ago when I graduated from Dallas Seminary, I probably would have said that I was a dispensational premillennialist, and I have found myself shifting with time to more of a historic premillennial view, so I'm not quite ready to say that would define me, but it's a similar, I think he was on a similar journey. Yeah. The tribulation. Um, I will say for myself, I hold it very loosely. If you talked to me 25 years ago, I would have been 100% pre-trib. Um, now I would say I lean pre-trib, but I could very easily shift into a post-tribulational perspective. Tom is post-tribulational. Um, John is post-trib. Um, Austin is trying to find himself. Um, and um, if that helps. So. Curiosity. Uh, leadership. Oh, there was. <laughs> um, I will tell you, by the way, D.A. Carson is probably the most famous theologian. He's, he's EFCA. And... Um, the seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Deerfield, Illinois, is an evangelical free church school, which probably leans to historic premillennialism the most. Um, but at the, at the vote in June, John was there. And John, John actually cast our vote for Riverstone.
21. They, um, every couple of years, the EFCA does a theology um, survey, pretty extensive. And they just recently, the results just came back within the last two weeks of the most recent one. And I saw a really interesting trend on that. They know the age of the people voting. And when you saw the positions, if pastors were over 50, they were much more um, dispensational um, pre-mill. Um, the younger they got, um, the less tightly they held to it. And so I think what you saw was, especially, do you guys ever read the Left Behind series? That's a dispensational pre-mill perspective. Um, if you go back to, remember the prophecy conferences in the 1900s were really big? They were primarily dispensational pre-mill in their perspective. So people coming out of those backgrounds tend to be much more strongly dispensational premillennial. The younger pastors, it is definitely not held that tightly. And um, I thought that was really interesting to see. John. Oh, yeah. It didn't vary by age. Which is encouraging to see that the younger generations are holding strongly to the essentials just as much as the older generation. And um, by the way, and John is the only pastor on our staff who's ordained in the EFCA. Um, (laughs) um, Jeremy is licensed in the EFCA. Um, You have to be licensed for three years before you can go for your ordination. And um, I'm ordained in the conservative Baptist church. And Tom is ordained probably conservative Baptist as well. So um, we have Baptists snuck in here.
sure. Sure. She's talking about the like the age of the earth, and when you're talking to people that. Right. But if we're talking about sharing and becoming a disciple, and we're talking to somebody in a coffee shop, we we aren't going to be doing that. Yeah, but you know what I. Yeah, and you know what, we actually, by the way, Keith, I'm going to throw out a, a bone to you. Um, one of Keith Plummer's specialties is apologetics that he's passionate about. And Keith, you can um, tell me if you agree with what I'm about to say, but if I were in a coffee shop talking to a young person, I wouldn't go to the age of the earth to try to convince them. Right. And there is a lot, there are quite a few evangel solid evangelicals that hold to an old earth. They believe that God created, he fully created, but he used an old, the old earth process to bring about creation. And so I, you know, that's why we don't put that in as an essential with the EFCA. Um, so, but, you know, it is something to me that I think, can God do it if he wanted to? Absolutely. Um, yes, because most, well, if you look at the world's view, they'll say, how can we account for creation without a God? Because they're, they're already jumping to the conclusion that there is no God. But just because somebody holds to an old earth doesn't mean that they've excluded God because there are evangelical Christians that will say, you know, God created everything. Um, he used a process of an old earth in doing so. Um, so that's why we wouldn't make too many distinctions there. But I think we do offer type some of those teachings like that and it's something that we will continue to do and obviously today's is focused on this because we're going to vote on it I want to just jump forward um, I, I think we covered all this so I, I gave some of the reasons why this was being done um, I can get these slides to you but um, one of the things that the EFCA does is called the mention this the significance of silence I just want to touch on this it says unity and essentials dialogue in differences. So what we're saying is, you know what, if we believe, you know, the atonement of Jesus Christ is an essential doctrine of the church, that's going to be unified across the EFCA. It's in our statement of faith. But on things like the age of the earth, on things like a millennial position, it's not in the statement of faith, so it means we're going to dialogue on the differences. And it also doesn't mean we're not going to study it or say that it's not important. We will still study it. Um, it says here, this expression does not mean that the EFCA will not discuss and debate these issues, but simply that the EFCA will not divide over them. So we may have an EFCA church 20 miles away that holds a different position on some of these things that we do, but we're going to have unity with them, even though we may, we may be Calvinistic in our teaching and they're not. Um, the EFCA strongly affirms the essentials of the statement of faith. I mentioned that. The EFCA acknowledges there are differences in theological views, what are considered non-essentials, but they are secondary and not, ought not to distract from or prevent a shared commitment to the gospel and a ministry of the gospel. Now, um, I sat in for about maybe 20 minutes 
uh, maybe six months ago or so, John was teaching in, in Bob Zimmerman's class on a Sunday morning, and the topic was basically saying, what grid do we use to determine what are the essentials and what are the non-essentials? And John did a really good job on that, so if you would like to get more on that, I'm sure he'd be willing to share some of those notes that he had, because um, there's something called dogmatic rank. Um, and this is how the EFCA kind of views, well, what do we consider essential and non-essential? Um, beginning with the Bible as foundational, the EFCA then considers these six issues to determine dogmatic rank. How do we dogmatically rank things? What is a first order essential? What would be second order? What would be third order? Um, relevance to our understanding of the nature and character of God. To what extent does this doctrine or practice reveal the person and nature of God? So they're saying that that's going to impact. Is it first order or second order? Um, connection to the gospel and the overarching narrative of the Bible. How directly is this doctrine or practice connected to the gospel and to the storyline of the whole Bible? See, there's other things that think about evangelical churches. Um, we all have to take a view on baptism. We at Riverstone Church, we do not baptize infants. But think of the number of solid evangelical churches that do infant baptism. Are we going to divide over that? No, we're not going to divide. But at Riverstone, we choose not to baptize infants because of how we interpret the scriptures on baptism. Number three exegetical clarity. To what extent does scripture unambigu unambiguously affirm this doctrine or practice? Biblical prominence. How prominent is this doctrine or practice in scripture? So it's saying we got to run all, all these issues through this grid. Historical consensus. How widespread is the consensus on this doctrine or practice in the church of both the past and the present? I showed you that slide over the centuries, how the dominant view has changed. Um, application to the church and the believer. How relevant is this doctrine or practice to us today? So that's the grid that the EFCA has used to say, is something first order, second order, third order in, in, in doctrine? And I believe that's my last slide. Oh, no, I don't. Actually, we don't, you know, here's um, key passages, which we're not going to have time to get to today. But I will tell you, here's a, a really interesting book. It's not easy reading. Um, it's, but this is a book, it's Steve Gregg is the author, called Revelation, Four Views Revised and Updated. It goes through the book of Revelation, and it says here on the views, historicist, which is, looks at everything as happening in the, in the, in the past, Preterist, which I'm not going to, I don't have time to get into, but basically saying a lot of the prophecy was fulfilled in the first century, primarily if you look through the period of the fall of, of Jerusalem to the Roman Empire. Futurist view, and then an idealist view, which more the idealist view probably falls more into the amillennial position. And what it does, it takes, like this is Revelation 12, 1 through 6, and it gives you a commentary in each column based on how that view would interpret that passage so you can see them right next to each other and if you get into revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 in particular 
that's where it talks heavily about the millennium. And if you go to this, you can say, wow, what does an all-millennialist, all how do they interpret that passage? And one of the things that I found at Dallas Seminary when I was there is it's really hard to write a paper and be dogmatic on some of these issues when you realize I am writing and I'm taking, you know, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, John Calvin, and saying why they're wrong. And um, because at the same time, I could say there's a lot of theologians that would be on my perspective. I'm premillennial, so I would actually have to say why those authors are wrong in their view. But what I also found was that they used, not everybody, but some of the, the names I mentioned, they used the word of God to defend their position. I have a lot of respect for that. I'm strongly, for myself, believe in believer baptism. We should only baptize believers in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't baptize infants. But I listened on, um, online, I was listening to R.C. Sproul defend infant baptism. What I really respected was that he used scripture to defend his position. And I listened to it and I thought, but I still can't believe you landed on that spot. The, you know, but he used scripture and he used it well to defend why they baptize infants. We don't agree with that. We look at scripture and say to us, clearly it leads us to believer baptism, but we need to have respect for those who interpret the Bible differently than we do on the non-essentials. But you will find people come out and take some of the essentials in our statement of faith and land on a position differently than we do. And if to me, if it's an essential doctrine, that is something that would be worth dividing over. And when I say dividing, if you see us at Riverstone Church moving away from one of the essentials in our statement of faith, that's the time for you to start saying, maybe I'm at the wrong church. Yes? Yep. Right. It's baptizing into the covenant community. Right. But I look at that and you say, look at how strongly baptism is shown in the scriptures. Therefore, when we look at all the scripture together, we, do, we follow believer baptism. Our, st our staff is, not all of our people necessarily. Right. With grace. Um, yeah, I think for me, I mean, I'm clearly Calvinistic. I believe in the doctrine of election. But, you know, I think it's about, John, do you remember, I think it was, the EFCA fell about 68% Calvinistic in the last one, I think. 
Yeah, it's a good one. Maybe like 60, 40 or something. But yeah, so, you know, this is even within our own denomination, let alone when you cross into other denominations that are not going to be necessarily Calvinistic, which really primarily takes the doctrine of election and, you know, what, hap you know, what comes first, you know, faith or regeneration and... Sure. And what we would say is these are not things to divide over, but we as a church, and to me, to me that's why I said there's first, second, third order things. There's things that we would say, well, you know what, maybe to us this doctrine is that important that we want to hire pastors that all hold the same position. And then there could be third order things that we'll just say it really doesn't matter to us if our staff has the various opinions here. I think it would be really hard to have a mixed staff on the Arminian Calvinistic one in the same church, but the denomination saying it's okay if churches have different views. It would be hard on the same staff on that one. So, any, we need to close up here, but... Um, Yeah, John, what would be the best way for me to um, have somebody, if you email me, I'll send it to you as an attachment. So if you just say, Bob, can you please send me your slides? I'll reply and put it to you as an attachment. Does that sound good? So just go btravis at riverstone.church. And um, if you want the slides, I'll be glad to send them to you. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we could talk about this issue and do it in such a way where we can be respectful to those who believe differently than we do on these non-essentials. Father, help us to stand strong on the essentials, but even there, let us do it with grace, but Lord, let us never compromise our own position. And Lord, on some of these areas that we have said are, are non-essentials, help us to, to disagree with grace, help us to show love towards one another, Help us to maintain unity in the body of Christ. And Father, I pray that as, as we wrestle with some of these issues, Lord, that most importantly, not that we become smarter, Lord, but that we, that we draw closer to you and we mature in our relationship with Christ. Father, we thank you for this time we've had here, but I pray for our church. As we vote on this issue coming up in September, help us to do it with love and with grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Yeah, but not. It all depends on when. They won't during the millennial period because they rebel. And, um, but when it comes to the, the time of final judgment, um, they, they absolutely will. Every knee will bow. But 